Good morning. We are uh, in the book of Genesis, yeah? We've been in the book for uh, a little over a month now. We're talking about Israel's origin story and our origin story, hence the name Origins. I know, it's a very inventive title. But we're asking the big questions in the series. uh, Who are we? Who is God? Why does it all matter? And we're attempting to read Genesis from the perspective of its original audience and culture. Uh, not just to get smarter, but to understand how to live from this story more faithfully. What does it look like to be made in the image of this God who uh, created everything, um, just as Israel was challenged to do? And we're diving deeper again on Wednesday nights. Uh, this is an open dialogue. It's on Zoom. It's available for everyone. So come, uh, dive deeper with us, ask questions. We would love to have you 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Let's see, last week we talked about who we are, yes? The fact that we are made in God's image, which means that we are given His authority to order and to create. And today, I come bearing good news. We made it to chapter 2, (laughs) y'all. We did it! Uh, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Some of the verses will be up here, but if you'd like to read along, grab a Bible or your phone. Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. There's that ancient cosmology again, remember? Waters of the deep springing up and watering the ground. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Tavala, where there is gold. Apparently, this is important stuff. The gold of that land is good. Uh, Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. 
So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Friends, we proclaim this good news today, that though sin has stained our relationships, making us suspicious and fearful of one another so that we use and hide from each other, it is not good for us to be alone. We were made for co-creation and we were made for communion with each other and with God. We were made to feel no shame as we talk with each other, as we face one another, as we're seen and, and see one another. And in Christ, we are recreated now as the church into one body, welcoming and receiving one another, honoring and lifting each other up, working together, male and female, married and single, one body in Christ. Um, I, you guys have probably picked up on this, but I've been on a bit of a learning journey about myself in the last few years. COVID has accelerated that learning process exponentially so, um, as, it, as it has for, I'm sure, many of you also. Um, but one of the things that I've, I've really honed in on myself is, is not just the fact that I can be, um, that I can be like distracted in somewhere else when I'm like in relationship with someone, particularly when it comes to my family, but why that happens oftentimes starting to get in touch with that. Why it is that I can um, kind of have people around me in my life but also miss out on that connection or feel like I need to be somewhere else. And it, it comes down to, for me, I'll put it this way, is sort of a, this social contract that I've made. Uh, and we all make these, I'll, I'll talk about them in a second, but we have these social contracts that we make with ourselves. And the social contract that I sort of make with myself is that uh, if I don't fully invest in the work of being present and available, then I'm guaranteed to avoid the pain when others reject or leave me or, or cause me pain or anxiety. Like, I, I can check out from that by checking out myself. You know what I mean? Like, I can, if I can be somewhere else, then I, I, I have one foot out the door in case things go sour. You know, this is a social contract that I've made as, as a way to insulate myself from the pain that relationships can often cause. Now, here's the bad news. Uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> and I know it doesn't work. I can watch myself do it and tell myself it doesn't work, but it's learning new habits and patterns that are the real trick. And that's what I'm kind of learning these days. But the social contract that I make with myself, it doesn't work. It actually leads to greater loneliness and loss of connection. Now, here's the thing. All of us do this in some way or shape or form. All of us have these social contracts. We sense in a very real way that to step into community is to take a very real risk. 
to actually be seen, to be known, to be with, to be welcomed, accepted, honored, lifted up. Like to put yourself out there to hope to receive those things is to risk the fact that you might, in your vulnerability and attempt to find communion and connection, receive instead pain and loneliness and abandonment and abuse. I mean, we've been together long enough that I know that you all, in some shape or form, bear the scars of, of taking those risks in the past. And that that impacts the way that you navigate relationships today. It has a very real impact on how you uh, pursue friendships and how authentic you're able to be. Some of those scars have come um, by way of church relationships and people in authority, uh, people who are pastors like me that have caused some of those wounds. But we're, we, we end up being um, afraid in a sense that we'll be rejected or that we won't belong and so we don't show up in some way. We, uh, we guard or we... Um, manipulate, we manage our sense of self. And I, I call these contracts because they're arrangements that we've made with ourselves to secure a connection or a form of connection with other people, ways that we manage and mitigate the brokenness of our communion. And so um, for me, it's sort of having one foot in and one foot out, you know, always kind of like being somewhere else and, and here at the same time. But maybe for you, it's, it's, uh, it's using anger to get other people to do what you want. The, the contract that you've made is that if you control the situation with your emotional outburst, then the anxiety that you feel when it comes to relationships will be kept in check. But it doesn't work. Maybe you use um, the power of your arguments to overpower other people with your intellect so that they'll think that you're significant. Maybe you use flattery or praise to get others to do what you want or to like you enough so that they'll be more amiable to doing what you hope they'll do in the future. It's like putting investments into a relational bank account that you hope to draw from on a later date. Maybe you try to impress others to manipulate them into thinking that you're better than you really are. That if they're impressed with your intellect or your accomplishments or your advice, that, the, that you'll be acceptable, that you'll have belonging. Maybe you never say no to other people in an effort to make them like you so they won't reject you. And maybe they'll say yes to you later because you never say no to them. And then they say no to you and you're reminded that it, the social contract isn't bearing the fruit that you wished it did. The bad news is, for me, for us, these Social contracts, they never work. They only leave us feeling more alone and isolated from others. And yet in the midst of the mess of how we navigate relationships, and though sin has stained these relationships and made us suspicious and fearful of one another so that we manipulate, use, and hide from each other, it is not good for us to be alone, family. It is not good for us to be alone. In fact, this navigation of relationships is a way of being alone together, and it doesn't work. It's not good for us. 
The good news, though, is that we are made for co-creation and communion with each other and with God. A being in relationship that's, that, that is free from shame. And in Christ, we're recreated as the church to be one body, welcoming and receiving each other, honoring and lifting each other up, working together, male and female, married and single, one body in Christ. That's what we're called to. It's a way to free us from our contracts and our shame. So, Genesis 2. We did it. We're here. Let's look at it. Genesis 2 is sort of a second creation narrative. If Genesis 1 says, here's one way of putting it, Genesis 2 comes along and says, here's another way to think about this. It has a different focus, a different emphasis. It, It focuses and hones in on Uh, the relational component of creation. And I'll just drop this in here. This may be helpful or may not, but um, many scholars actually consider Genesis 2 to be older than Genesis 1 in terms of its final written form. Uh, Because there, we we all talked about this in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, there are many touch points to Babylonian culture. We talked about Israel being in exile. But in Genesis 2, it actually has many touch points to Mesopotamian culture, which is older. And there's a document called the Atrahasis. I've mentioned that before. Um, It's going to come up when we get to the Noah uh, flood narrative. Uh, And it has a lot of similarities with the way that we see humans created here. So it's almost like these two are in dialogue with one another. And and Israel is, is telling a new story, in a sense, about what God is like. And the, the, the new story is, is uh, necessary because in other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, the whole reason that we are suspicious and fearful of one another is because we inherited these traits from the gods. <laughs> That's the whole reason. Like, why are relationships so messed up? Why can't we get along? Why do we fight? Why do we... Uh, backstab and isolate from each other. Well, it's because that's what the gods do. Like they're, you know, I mean, so like we see clearly they're, the gods in a sense are made in our image. But to them, like the whole reason why we have relational strife is because we've inherited it from these gods who act this way towards one another. They're constantly fighting and backstabbing and breaking promises and causing pain. Put it a different way. It's sort of like saying we need these social contracts Because this is just the way that relationships are. They're not good. And so they need to be managed and mitigated. We need to to hide and we need to to have shame. It's useful for us. So just get with the program. Stop having such high expectations of other people. Is how ancient people would have seen relationships. But Genesis comes along and, he get, and it gives us an entirely different basis for what relationships are and what relationships could be. It says, no, no, don't set your expectations too low. The reason you have expectations at all is because of how we were designed to live in relationship with one another and something has broken and stained that expectation. We can work towards something that's better and more beautiful. This is the story of Genesis. And it begins with the account of God shaping the first human person. Now, what's the name that we're familiar with 
when it comes to this human person. We call him something. What do we call him? You, you read it. Adam, right? And, and then subsequently later, we have his wife Eve. But it's important to note that Adam actually wouldn't have been considered a name so much as it would have been considered a title. Adam means the human. It's a, it's a picture of humanity. And, and, and humanity is created from the earth. So the, the Hebrew word Adam, or Adam, is the word for human. The word for earth is Adamah. So Adam is the one who comes from the Adamah. He is the person from the soil. Some scholars think of Adam as a, a, an individual person who lived in time and space. And it, that's not a wrong reading, okay? Other scholars think that Adam is an archetype of humanity. And I want to suggest that that's not necessarily a wrong reading either. Okay? We live 3,000 years removed from this text, and we can kind of view it with different lenses. We've, we're used to the lenses that we've always viewed it with, but sometimes different lenses can actually help us to see different things that we couldn't see before. So Adam is a title. It's the human one. And this human is taken from the ground, and God breathes the breath of life into him, and he becomes a living being. And then God plants a garden and puts the human in the garden to tend it and care for it. And we see this, uh, the good news that we proclaimed last week that's at work here too, that God invites his creation to co-create with him. This is the amazing thing. God brings his human into his work of ordering and shaping creation and says, I'm just going to bring you these animals and whatever you decide to call them, like that's what they're named. Like that's amazing, you know? And God essentially gave over authority for Adam to call them whatever he wanted. And I kind of, I always picture it this way. Like God's like, really? That's what you, a giraffe. Okay, a giraffe. It's called a giraffe forever now. Okay, good. Next. You know, like, but he gives them this ability. I, I think of when my uh, nephew Matthew, uh, after he was born, he was like really little. You know how like kids always come up with these like crazy names for things? And, there's, and you never want to correct them, right, as a parent or as a, as a grown-up because they're just so stinking cute. And they're, you, you, I just want it to be called that forever and I don't ever want to forget it. And then they get a little bit older and you forget all these things. So, like, I can't remember most of what my kids, like, called stuff when they were really little. But I do remember my nephew. We're having breakfast together and we were having Lucky Charms. But he couldn't say Lucky Charms. And so he called them Chucky Arms. And forever, when it, like, it doesn't matter who's eating them. I could be eating a bowl of Lucky Charms at midnight on a Thursday, and I'm thinking to myself, these are some good Chucky Arms, you know? <laughs> like, this, that's what they're called. God invites us into his co-creation. We get the authority to, to imbue creation with meaning and purpose. It's amazing that God gives us that ability. He doesn't just tell us what the world is like. He sets us loose and says, you're free to explore it. Go and find out what I've placed out there for you. Name it and order it and care for it. It's, it's incredible. So the, the human is co-creating with the Lord. He's doing this thing that God's created him to do. And then along comes, though, the first not good. 
Everything up to this point has been either good or very good, but suddenly something is not good. What is the thing that's not good? Yeah, not to be alone. It's not good for the human person to be alone. And so the Lord says, I'll make a helper suitable to him. Now we're going to get to uh, what helper suitable means, but this not good is placed in the midst of the naming of these animals to help us see that none of the other created order is able to fulfill the need that humans have to not be alone. And so ox can be useful, birds can be beautiful, but there's something missing. A need is unfulfilled. A helper suitable is not there yet. And so God puts the human into a coma and then takes what the NIV calls a rib, which always made me wonder why men don't have one less rib than women. Do you ever, like as a kid, wonder that? You're like, why? Where's our missing rib, you know? The, the word for rib here, there's some ambiguity about it, but it, it means side. From the side of the man, he fashions a woman. And then he brings uh, the woman to the man, and the man breaks out in song. It says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, the Hebrew is Isha, for she was taken from man, Ish. The Isha from the Ish. And they were together and naked and felt no shame. And friends, this is a snapshot of the goodness of community and communion that we were intended to experience in relationship with one another. This is the whole reason why I said that, that as human beings, we, we, we long for community and, and we set our expectations too low out of a sense of fear and shame. But the picture that we get, the archetype of humanity and community, is that we were, we were created to experience community without shame, without a sense that there's something wrong about me that needs to be managed or mitigated or hidden or covered up. This is what we were created for. Now, there, there are a few things that we have to talk about here. This story presents this beautiful picture of humanity and humanity here is male and female together in mutuality and communion, doing the work of image bearers together. And I think at least um, part of the reason why this picture of communion seems so elusive to us or may not be indicative of, the, of our personal experience, even our experience within the church, has something to do with maybe the way that we've read this most crucial of stories. In many ways, we read into this story things that are true about the way relationships work today, and we think that they were always there all along, rather than that they were kind of things that we've added to the story, rather than what's actually there. If we misread this story, this is what's on the line for us, if we misread this story, it can end up creating shame and encouraging us to feel suspicion and fear towards one another, if we misread it. Again, we have to put on new lenses, maybe, and entertain the idea that maybe we've missed something. You with me? All right. One of the ways um, that I think that we've read into this story is that we've read into the story a theme that's, that may not necessarily be there, and that's the theme of hierarchy, the theme of patriarchy. Essentially, that this is a story that confirms and justifies men having authority over women. And perhaps you've heard this interpretation. Maybe it was used to determine what you were and were not allowed to do as a person. Uh, we can talk about that more Wednesday. 
want to come and share that story. But the way that this interpretation goes is this, that man was created first, and so he's supposed to have authority. He's first, and so he's above. That's the way the story goes. Which is plausible until you begin reading the rest of Genesis. If you read the rest of Genesis, you realize that all kinds of things come along that upend the story, that if, if this is the way that we've seen the story. So consider this. When children are born into families throughout the rest of the story of Genesis, those of you who know Genesis well, how many times does the firstborn get to be an authority over the secondborn? Pop quiz. Never or almost never, if I can remember. So when it comes to receiving the blessing of God, who gets it? Cain the firstborn or Abel the second? Abel. When it comes to um, carrying on the line of the covenant of God, who gets it? Ishmael the firstborn or Isaac the second? Isaac. When it comes to uh, the blessing of Isaac passing down to the next generation, who gets it? Esau the firstborn or Jacob the second? Jacob. Even though Isaac wants it to go to Esau. God had other plans. Who gets um, the, the dream of being the one in authority when it comes to the 12 sons of Jacob slash Israel? Is it his brothers or is it Joseph? Joseph, which is why they're all so ticked off. Because in ancient Near Eastern culture, it's the firstborn that has authority over the rest. The one who comes first is greatest and gets the most rewards. But in Genesis, it's never the firstborn who has the authority. Not at the end of the story. In fact, Genesis ends with Joseph being the second in command of Egypt and his brothers bowing down to him just as the, the dream that, that Joseph had all those years before told would come to pass. You see what God's doing in Genesis? He's upending and undoing and subverting the assumptions of Israel's ancient Near Eastern contemporaries who would have assumed that the, the firstborn gets the inheritance, the blessing, the authority, the status, and on and on and on. In Genesis, it's a different story, which means we can't use that kind of logic in chapter 2. It just doesn't work here because the rest of the book destroys it. So the sequential nature of man then woman is not about hierarchy. It's not about who's most important and who's less, who has more status, who has less. What is it about? It is about the need that men and women have for each other. It's about the need that we have for one another. So we can't describe this need without talking about this term, suitable helper. Let me ask, what comes to mind for you when you hear that term? A suitable helper. An assistant, yeah. Did you read my notes, Jacob? That's sort of the idea that at least comes to mind for us. Is an assistant. It's an intern who fetches our coffee and does the work that we hate doing. The tedious things that are less important. Or holds our tool belt while we get to the real stuff. If that's, our, if that's the picture that we have in our minds, then um, no wonder we've had an issue like with this term before. Like if you've ever had like a visceral reaction to that term, 
we're like, oh, I don't know how that fits me. Like, if, as a, if you're a woman sitting here going, like, I have some bad history with that term. No wonder. No wonder. And I, I don't want to belittle occupations that serve other people. Interns and assistants are good and necessary and uh, important. But for so many women, I think, this suitable helper title has served to both limit what they can do with the gifts that God has given them and diminish who they are as image bearers. And that's what needs to end. And that's just the helper part. The word suitable might bring to mind the fact that many women feel like their sole purpose is, is in relationship to a man, to a sort of assist a man. That their existence isn't valuable in and of itself. And if that's the case, like, what about single people? Do single people not count if you don't have a man to associate yourself with? You see the implications of all these things in the way that we often talk about them. I want to proclaim something better. And so we have to look at this term, Ezer Konegdo. This is the term, a helper suitable. Ezer, helper, Konegdo, suitable. Ezer, who else is called an Ezer in Scripture? Do you know? God is called an Ezer. Let me give you a couple examples. Psalm 115 verse 9 says, All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help, Ezer, and shield. Deuteronomy 33.29 says, Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you and you will tread on their heights. Listen, the enemies of Israel aren't cowering because the Lord comes to Israel's aid with coffee and a foot rub. He's not their personal assistant. He's their strength in times of weakness. Does this give you a different picture, women, of what you are? This is what God proclaims over you. They, it's not a subservient position. It's a place of strength. God himself is an Ezra. God has come to save the day. He has come to do for Israel what Israel cannot do for itself. You think, um, think about all the, the gender stereotypes that are common today about what men and what women are. Men are often depicted like strong, capable, independent, rational thinkers. And women, what are women often depicted as? Weaker, dependent, emotional, nice. Look at, look at Genesis 2, friends. In Genesis 2, who's the one that's in need? It's the man. The man is lonely, the man is vulnerable, the man is lacking, and the woman is depicted as the strength bringer. This would have scandalized the assumptions of ancient cultures, and it even it scandalizes us today. Women, you were created in God's image and likeness. You were not created as someone who, who can only assist because you're weak. You were created as someone who can bring strength and passion and purpose because of what you have to offer. So that's the helper part, the Ezer. What about the Konegdo? Konegdo means suitable, but suitable doesn't mean you're only valuable in relationship to a man. Suitable, Konegdo, means facing or corresponding to. And this points to the female's equality. That even though woman came from man, it's giving this sense that humanity isn't just male now, it's female too. 
there are two corresponding equal parts to humanity. Konegdo means neither above nor below. That's why the woman was taken out of the side, not the foot. See what I'm getting at? Because now we live side by side, one corresponding to the other, equal partners, co-regents over creation, I said last week. And as a church, we're confirming and affirming this view of women. That no matter what your vocation is, what your gifts are, what your passion is, what your calling is, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you work part-time or full-time, whether you don't have kids, have kids, don't want kids, you are every bit as equal to the men here. Every bit. And we are contending for a culture where we don't just value uh, the presence and service of women, but the voice and the strengths of women. That's what we're contending for. The good news that we proclaim today is that though sin has stained our relationships and made us suspicious and fearful of one another, it is not good for us to be alone. God made us for co-creation and for communion. And in Christ, we're created as the church to be one body who welcomes and receives one another, honors and lifts each other up, works together, married and single, male and female, one body in Christ. A couple additions before we can respond. The first is this. Genesis 2 is about marriage, yes, but it's not just about marriage. Marriage here is meant to be an icon or a symbol for all humanity. But if if marriage were the pinnacle of what it means to be in communion with another person, then friends, Jesus misses out on what it means to be fully human. Because Jesus himself wasn't married. In fact, when Jesus is talking about marriage, Uh, marriage in his day was being used as a social contract to oppress women. And, And Jesus comes to women's aid in the midst of that social contract and says, no, you actually, you men can't divorce your wives for any and every reason that you can possibly conceive of just because you don't like her anymore. You're bound in covenant with them. And, and Jesus' own disciples go, well, if that's what marriage is, it would be better not to be married which tells you everything you need to know about their understanding of marriage. But to them, like, you're either in this contract where, as a man, you get to do whatever you want and leave whenever you want, or, God forbid, you'd have to go your entire life single. And and after coming to the aid of women, Jesus comes to the aid of single people. And he says this, there are eunuchs who were born that way. This is Matthew 19. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who... Choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. What in the what? All of a sudden, Jesus brings up eunuchs? A eunuch in Jesus' day is a single celibate person, which by and large were marginalized people. What's Jesus saying? He's saying you can be single in the kingdom of God and live a fully faithful life because I have. I've done it, and you can do it too if that's what you're called to. The one who can accept this should accept it as good and right. You're not a second-class citizen. I think the church in general, I know I have been guilty of this, but we have so idolized marriage and family that we have ended up ostracizing and marginalizing single people and the gift that they are to the body. I'm sorry if that's the message that you've ever heard from me. Please accept my sincerest apology we need to do better 
Marriage is a picture of human community, but it's not the only form. Uh, Number two, friendship can happen between men and women without it leading to or detracting from marriage. Friendship can happen. Men with men, women with women, but also men with women and women with men. How do we know this? Well, I mean, you know, Jesus had women friends. <laughs> For one, there's, a, there's an example. And so it, if Jesus is capable of it, we're, we, we are expected that we are becoming like him in every way, which means that we should have space for this to become something that's part of our reality too. Now, it's important not to confuse friendship for marriage. They're not the same thing, even if they share some characteristics, so we have to be clear on that. But there is a beauty that we've missed as the church because we've been so scared of inappropriate relationships, false accusations, and scared of what could go wrong that we forfeited the gift of what could come if we lived out what could, what could be right. Again, we'll say more about this Wednesday. I wish I could say more now, but I can't. I just, I, I just want you to hear this. Like there, and I've said this in a previous message, but it bears repeating. There are no second-class citizens here. None. Not a one. If you're single and want to stay that way, if you're single and want to get married, if you're married and your marriage is, is in trouble, if you're divorced, if you don't have kids, can't have kids, if your spouse doesn't participate in the church, you are not a second-class citizen here. We need to learn together how to break down these hierarchies and power differentials that we've created that end up um, multiplying the shame and the sin management that we feel we need to do, this dance in relationship with one another. We need to set our eyes higher for what's possible within the church. Paul is doing this kind of work with the Galatians when he says that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, there is nor, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. He's breaking down all of these stereotypes and misnomers that are just, everybody takes for granted that this is the way society works. And he's going, you don't need to function the, according to the old rules of the world anymore. You're, you're God's church. You're His body. You're a foretaste of the future. And so all of you together, if you've been baptized into Christ, you've been clothed with Christ, all of you, the good news that we proclaim is that though sin has stained our relationships and made us suspicious and fearful of one another, it's not good for us to be alone. God has made us for co-creation and made us for communion. And we in Christ are recreated as the church to be one body, a foretaste of what's coming down the road for all humanity a people that welcomes one another and receives one another, honors and lifts each each other up, works together, married and single, male and female, one body in Christ, no distinction, no second-class citizens. Let's pray.